You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Michael Graziano, who is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Princeton University. And he's also the author of a number of books, including Intelligent Movement Machines, God, Soul, Mind, Brain, just slightly ambitious <laughs> subject matter there, but also the author of Consciousness and the Social Brain and the Spaces Between Us, a story of neuroscience evolution and human nature, and most recently, Rethinking Consciousness, Scientific Theory of Subjective Experience, which builds on a lot of the previous work and targets, I think, a slightly more accessible audience. Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you. Now, in one of your books, you said that the theory of consciousness is kind of in a pre-Darwinian moment. I think what you meant by that was that before Darwin came along, there were all of these sort of dead ends in the world of biology, trying to figure out, trying to come up with sort of a general understanding of what how biology worked. And it was really only when Darwin came along that we now have a sort of an integrated understanding of it. And consciousness is probably considered by many the hard problem. And I think you talk about that as one of the alternative theories of consciousness to your own. So how does it make sense to talk about it as a pre-Darwinian moment? And how does it also make sense to think of us as being potentially at the cusp of an understanding of consciousness that will allow us to, if not shelve some of these other theories, at least integrate them into a unified perspective. Yeah, I'm going to be bold here. I think we do understand the basics of consciousness. And I wrote that about 10 years ago. And by pre-Darwinian, I meant exactly what you're saying. I meant that we lacked a theory that was rational that actually explained anything. And instead we had some speculation that was magical at its heart, even though many people didn't quite realize that they were invoking magic to make their theories work. And so we needed that explanation. Like Darwin explains evolution by the trick of natural selection. What the heck is the trick here? How do we explain this mind stuff that comes out of neurons and brain parts? But that was 10 years ago. I think that we have a general explanation. I don't think I'm the only one who believes that explanation. At this point, there's a kind of a set of underlying principles, rational, straightforward principles about information processing in the brain that I think convergently more and more people are beginning to realize, oh yeah, this seems to be the general shape of the explanation. And within that, then there's my own particular theory, which I think is an especially simple or elegant version of those underlying principles. But I would say we do understand. I think people are used to thinking of consciousness as an unsolvable, overly ambitious, giant problem. And I don't think it is. And yeah, that's my perspective on it at, at this point. And so why now? Is it because of all the thought that has been devoted to artificial intelligence, right? And we've seen the emergence of neural networks. We've seen the emergence of machines that are capable of processing huge amounts of information, capable of, of making decisions, capable of having things that we might call attention, 
And so it's forced us to think about what exactly makes them different from us. Is that really what's helped us to drill down into this new way of thinking about consciousness? I would say yes, actually in two different ways. The rise of machines that can compute stuff, I think is one of the main drivers of the realization, the initial realization that consciousness is a really hard problem. I think before machine computation came along, people thought of consciousness as, oh, there's just stuff in your head. That's what it is. That's like William James's stream of consciousness. It's just a bunch of stuff in your head. And at some point people realized we can actually build that kind of stuff in computerized brains and machines, but no matter how much we build a particular processes and routines into them, they don't seem to be conscious. So is there something missing, something extra we don't understand? And that I think helped frame the initial question, the initial idea of a hard problem, that there's something else, some extra essence that we're missing that machines don't have. But now that we're getting much more sophisticated with artificial intelligence, with neural network processing, with theories of computation and information processing in the brain, I think we're beginning to realize, wait, yes, there's something that was missing, but the thing that was missing is itself fairly rationally understandable and ultimately probably buildable in some not too distant future. Well, I think the central part of your work is built around this idea of a schema. And I guess large part of your work was about this body schema. And then you also worked predominantly, mostly recently in this idea of attention schema. So what is this idea of a schema or kind of a theory about how parts fit together? What does this mean when we talk about a schema? So one of the most fundamental principles of the brain is that it's a model builder. And I like the word model and schema in a sense is another word for model. So what the brain does is it builds information, chunks of information that roughly represent something real that it needs to monitor, that it needs to make predictions about. And we do this all the time. And so when you look around the world, the actual visual world is different from what you see because your visual system has built a schema, a simulation, if you will. It's a simplified version of what's really out there. Uh, it's a very simplified version in ways most people don't even quite realize. And the body schema, you're right, I studied that for years and years. That was one of my main focuses of research for many years. The body schema is the brain's model of its own body. So we have that in us. Our brain is busy building this simulation of a body by which we keep track of ourselves. And one of the best illustrations of that is this case. Of course, it's a, always an unfortunate thing. If you have an amputation, most people with amputations report a phantom limb. Now the phantom limb for some people fades right away. And for other people, it can linger for years and years, but most people report a phantom limb. What is a phantom limb? It's the brain's model that has not quite caught up with the reality yet. So the brain builds these models and the models are never accurate. They're never fully detailed. They're never fully accurate. We, our brains build these automatic simulations of the world that are simplifications that are not the real world. They never are. It's a basic fundamental principle. You can be sure the brain's models are never accurate. And so most of what we think we know about ourselves and the world has some reality to it, but also some simplification and some inaccuracy and some invention to it. 
So that's what I mean by a schema. It's a schematic model of real things that a brain needs to know about. You described in one of your books, your first experience with the rubber hand illusion and what a kind of a, something clicked inside of you when, you know, when it happened, could you describe that? And what does it tell us about how we inhabit our body? Yes. The rubber hand illusion is this wonderful way to show just how weird and complicated this body schema is. So it used to be people thought, well, I know where my limbs are because I get joint information. There's some sensor in my joints, you know, and it goes to my brain and tells my brain, my arm is here, my arm is there. That's it. That's simple. That isn't what happens. The brain builds a simulation of your body and then it uses little cues and clues like joint angle or the sight of a limb. And it uses them to help inform and constrain the model the best it can. But the model is your sense of who you are physically. And you can manipulate that in the lab. You can play with that. And the rubber hand illusion is one of those wonderful examples. There's lots of versions, but they all come down to a rubber hand that you incorporate into your body schema and you think it's your own hand. And there's lots of ways to do that. The classic way is take a paintbrush and stroke the rubber hand while simultaneously out of you, somebody is stroking your real hand with a paintbrush and you see those, the stroking and you feel it on your hand simultaneously. And poof, your body schema reorganizes those parts of your brain, which are under the surface. They're beneath cognition. They're automatic. They take in that data, they re reorganize and they say, Ooh, that thing is my hand. And the weird thing is cognitively, it's not mm -hmm. like you're being intellectually fooled, but the deeper models that your brain is building, those are basically telling you, telling your cognition, no, that's your hand. That's your hand. So it's a very weird feeling. Suddenly that rubber thing belongs to you. And the way they, I was proprioception is related to this, right? Yeah. So proprioception would be the signals, the particular joint angle signals that come from an arm that tell you about that arm. But what this is saying is that's not sufficient. That's not the whole thing. Cause here you have visual signals and tactile signals and other ways to trick the system so that the deeper model is built wrong, basically. And the way they test that one of the many clever ways they test that is suddenly they whip out a hammer and they whack the rubber hand with it. And if you don't think it's your hand, you just watch and you don't care. But as soon as that illusion is induced, when that hammer comes down on that hand, you have this huge autonomic uh, sort of fear reaction. And it's quite funny. It's quite startling actually. So one of the things that people are always interested in is what makes us human or what makes us special or what makes mm -hmm. us different from rocks, but you know, maybe even yes. octopi or other forms of life. And some people have said it's, we're the tool using animal or we're the, the hairless animal or we're the social animal or whatever. But I think to some extent we're the model building and, and using animals, but I think doesn't a robot have to have a, a model of some kind in order for it to operate successfully? I mean, doesn't, does a Tesla have to have a model of, of the world or can it simply just read and react in a way that is a product of its training data, right? You just reinforce the, the learning and, and it just sees this, does that. Does it need to have a model of, Hey, that's the human being, or that's a, a fire hydrant or whatever. Can it just that need to, un I mean, I guess you argue that it, at the very least it needs to understand its own 
dimensions and its own capabilities. It has to have a body schema of some kind in order for it to avoid crashing. Yes. Yes. Tesla needs some kind of internal model, many internal models of itself, models of its own capabilities, of its own size and shape and speed and so on, and models of the outside world. There's this principle in engineering that any control system needs a model of the thing it controls. It's a very basic principle and it's very robust and it seems to be true. And it's certainly true in the case of the brain. So any creature that can move competently has some kind of model of its own body. Otherwise it can't do that. And yes, a Tesla or other kind of robot needs some kind of model. So we're chock full of models of the external world, models of internal processes. So one way to think of it, you alluded to it. One style of computing is what you might call a lookup table, sensory in motor out that triggers this particular output. And you learn to associate one by one inputs with outputs. It's very inefficient and it's, it's actually a, a pretty awful way to organize a computational system and a much more robust, much more efficient way is model-based computation. So the inputs help inform a deeper model of what's probably going on. The deeper model or simulation of what's probably going on then informs your behavior. And so there's that extra step where you build models. And that's, of course, what we do. But it's what every animal does at some level to some extent. Otherwise, they can't function at all. So you can have a body without having a body schema, but if you don't have a body schema, then you're not going to really be very good at doing anything with this body. Yes. And, and similarly with attention. So there's a difference between attention and an attention schema. Yes. Okay. Could you talk a bit about that? Because that's, I think you made a couple other references. You said that a computer can have memory without having an awareness of memory. It can make decisions without having an awareness of having, of making decisions. So an attention schema is about an awareness of attention and the capacity to direct that attention is, or is it uh, sort of a model of how attention works? Yeah, that's right. It's a model of how attention works. So I came at this problem from uh, a neuroscience point of view, from the point of view of somebody who studied movement control. I had just spent 10 years studying how the arm and hands and other parts of the body move in complex ways. And we saw the incredible power of this idea that the brain builds models of the things it's trying to control. Like it builds a model of the arm, not so that we can have fun, but so that we can control the arm. And when the arm model goes away because of a stroke, then you can't control your arm anymore. So you need the model to control the arm. The model describes the arm. It tells you what an arm is and what your particular arm is doing and what it's capable of doing. So when we began to think about attention, which in some ways is like an arm, it moves around and it grabs onto things. It possesses things. I can pay attention to you, or I can pay attention to a memory of what I ate for breakfast this morning, or I can pay attention to a sound coming from behind me. There's this whole range of things that my attention can move around and grasp onto. And when it does, there's certain consequences. If I'm attending to something that I can understand it, I can process it deeply. I can react to it. I can remember it. So that's what attention is at the most superficial, the highest level without all the little implementation details. That's what attention is. But to control it, to actually internally say, 
now my attention needs to move from here to there. Now it needs to move from here to, now it needs to move to the knife that I'm going to scoop the peanut butter with. Now it needs to move to the slice of bread so I can put the thing on. Now it needs to move to the jar so I can put it back in the cabinet. Any kind of complex task I do requires me to strategically move my attention and shape it and control it and make it higher here and smaller there. So I need control over it, which means I need a model of it. My brain has to be constantly telling me what attention is, what it's doing at the moment and what the consequences are. So that's an attention schema. And as we thought about that, what does it mean to have an attention schema? Supposing you built a machine with an attention schema, what does that even mean? What kind of machine do you have? Suppose that machine could talk and tell you what's going on based on the information inside of it. What would it say? And we began to realize a machine with an attention schema is a machine that claims to have a subjective awareness of things, because if it's paying attention to something, if it's paying attention to the peanut butter knife and its attention schema is telling it about its own attention and you ask it, what are you doing? It's not going to tell you, oh, my neurons are doing this and that, and there's interactions between them and competitive inter. It's not going to tell you the details. It's attention schema lacks all the physical details. All the machine knows is I have a thing inside of me that is weird and somehow seizes onto the peanut butter knife at the moment. And therefore I know about that, that object and I grasp it vividly with some kind of mind thing and therefore I can react to it. That's all the machine knows. That's the information in its attention schema. So we realize there is this direct line from this simple principle from control engineering to attention, a thing one needs to control to a model of attention telling you only in the crudest, roughest sense, what attention is. And finally to the system believing and thinking and claiming that it has a subjective experience of things, a consciousness of things. So suddenly we had this overarching explanation and the center of it, the heart of it was this attention schema, this necessity for an attention schema. But why is it necessary, right? You describe in the book, you start, you start with sea sponges and work your way up, right? Through octopi and frogs, but let's just skip right to the frogs. So if I'm a frog and if you could get the speechinator to translate froggies into English, right? You know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The frog would be like, okay, not much. Oh, there's a fly. Boom. I got the, you know, got the fly, right? Why would that not suffice as an attentional schema to say, you know what? I see the frog. I zap the frog, I eat the frog and, uh, delicious, right? Like what's missing in the kind of frog attention? Cause they clearly have the ability to, their attention moves around, their attention moves around according to a logic, to logic that's dictated by the stimuli in the environment. It's a series of if thens it's very well designed and orchestrated in order to, you know, maximize frog nutrition and survival. Why isn't that sufficient? Presumably it's also learned that, Hey, if there's a predator, pay attention to that and not to the fly. If the water's getting hot, forget about the fly, forget about the predator, get out of the water. There's presumably some kind of algorithmic logic behind how the frog redirects its attention. Isn't that all we need? What's the extra added value of, I don't know, being able to, is the ability to articulate it 
closely tied with the ability to control it or? I would not, I, no, not that part. So let me say first, frogs are probably more complex than we give them credit for. And so my account of the frog is, of course, a little bit limited to the ways people have studied frogs. And there may be parts of the frog brain and parts of frog capability that we don't know about. So my apologies to the frogs if I do them wrong here. But what we do know about frogs is that their attention is largely something called over attention. It's over attention, meaning they point their eyes at things. Like that's the frog version of paying attention to something is point your eyes at it. And that way information comes in through the eyes and you process it. And if you're not pointing your eyes at it, you're not processing it. So that's a frog's attention. Frog does not have what we think of as attention. So it doesn't have a kind of virtual spotlight that it can shift and move between external and internal events. Its, its attention is limited to sensory events on the outside to which it can point its head, right? So at the very best, if the frog has this attention and it has an attention schema to help control its attention, what is that attention schema doing? It's simply telling the frog where your head is pointed. It's saying your head's pointed here, your head's pointed there. And so if you really could ask that system and extract the information from it, what do you have other than the fly and your body? What is there? Is there anything extra? The information in that system says there's a head and an eyeball and it can move. That's what it thinks it has. But we, and perhaps other mammals and birds and maybe many reptiles. So beyond the amphibian stage, we, especially mammals, I think, have a, a different, much more complex kind of attention. It's a virtual spotlight. And so, yes, we can focus it on things out there like a fly, which might be annoying us or dinner in front of us, but we can also shift it internally and focus that spotlight on memories or on an emotion or on a thought. We can virtually move this spotlight through dimensions that have nothing to do with the three dimensions of space. That virtual spotlight, somehow the way we tend to think of it is it grabs onto things, it possesses things, objects, items, and it allows us to deeply process those items. So if you take that system that has that kind of attention, it's called covert attention, and you then ask it, what do you have other than the object out there that you're paying attention to and other than your body, what is there? The information in that system says there's something else. There's something virtual. There's something that can move and morph and shift that I have control over. And it's the way I seize on and take possession of items and understand them deeply and enable myself to react to them. So. It's because we have this other kind of attention, this more sophisticated attention, and because we have information about what that is, what our attention is, that's what enables us. That's it gives us the whole concept of a conscious mind, a conscious experience. So I don't think any creature without that kind of attention has consciousness. I don't think consciousness is relevant to creatures without that. I don't think there's anything in their brains that has anything to do with consciousness. So covert attention is, it's more than, because you could imagine simply shifting attention from one sensory cue to, to another sensory cue. Okay. I'm going to pay more attention to the auditory cue and less attention to the visual cue. 
but you could also, for instance, you know, if you're listening to music, you could shift from paying attention to the rhythm to the melody. Or if you were looking at a painting, you could shift from focus on value to color. And then it would presumably then create a bit of a suppression of the other stimuli. But then the other, just the other use of the covert attention is when you use this exam, you mentioned football. So I, I was thinking football and I was thinking about like the no look pass, right? Patrick Mahomes, who's looking this way and throwing the ball that way. That's another kind of covert attention. Like you're looking at your shoes, but you're paying attention to the teacher who's scolding you, right? That's, that's. Yes. Yes. So our covert attention this really sophisticated kind of attention is independent of where your eyes are pointing. It's independent of what's coming in through your senses. And you're right. You could look at a picture, but be paying attention to the deeper meaning instead of the colors or paying attention to the lines instead of the hues or whatever. So that's exactly right. That's the whole point. It's a kind of attention that is general in the sense it applies to any information domain and it isn't just moving around a, a simple visual world pointing at this object or pointing at that object. It applies to any information domain and it's under your control. And it probably evolved with the forebrain, as it's called, this part of the brain that turned into the mammalian cortex and birds have a version of it and reptiles have a fairly well-developed version of it as well. Although mammals have the biggest version of all our cerebral cortexes evolve quite a bit but that particular kind of attention this covert attention that can move through any information domain that's emancipated from the literal sensory world out there that seems to be a product of the forebrain of and especially well developed in mammalian cortex now you've written a lot of scientific books you've also written a lot of uh, fiction. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But as far as I know, you haven't written a self-help book, but I would imagine that you could very write a pretty good one because a lot of people are interested in kind of attention and how to manage attention. Is it fair to say that some people are more aware of their attention than others? Are more people mammalian and more people reptilian in that sense? And I was thinking, or do people have more attention? It seems like there's a finite amount of attention, but then when you look at, say, high-performing athletes, they seem to be aware of what's in front of them and what's behind them and what's above them and what's to the left of them, and they seem to be reading all the in intents of all the other people around them. And you look at that and you say, man, I could never do any of that stuff. Is there like a, a volume of attention? Is there a capacity to I don't know, sharpen one's attention or manage it more skillfully. And again, I know that's outside of the content of the book, but I kept thinking those things when I was reading it. Yeah. I think people do vary enormously in the details of their attention systems, how that's working. I think there's a lot of interpersonal variation. I think also there's ways that you can tune it up and improve it. My guess is that the athletes that seem to be aware of everything around them aren't really and they're not actually attending. I suspect that's more like automatization. That is with practice, you learn to do very complex tasks without having to allocate attention to them. They become automatized. They sink down into uh, deeper, more specialized mechanisms that don't require the big cortical attention mechanisms. And I bet that's where you see a lot of that super expertise that's so impressive, just lots and lots of brute practice. However, here's a trick that athletes and dancers and so on use to improve control of your limbs 
improve the brain's model of your limbs. So try to increase the vividness of your internal sense of where your limbs are and what they're doing. So the body schema itself can be trained up. And when that happens, your control over your movements improves. So how do you translate that into attention? If you want really good control over your attention, improve your model of attention, sharpen it up, practice using it. And uh, I think that's basically what meditation, especially mindfulness meditation is. I think it's training up the ability to control your attention. And it does so by training up this awareness thing, this awareness, subjective consciousness of things, right? That's what it's training up. That's what it's en enhancing the mechanism of that as essentially as part of the control machinery for your attention. So I think there are immediate clinical practical applications to this kind of thinking. I think it goes straight into a whole world out there of, of self-help and benefit. So you can have a more accurate or less accurate model, right? You, you talk about using a hammer and how, you know, it, to be effective, you don't necessarily have to have a completely accurate model. It has to be accurate enough. But I guess if you want to be like a, a really good at using a hammer, then you have to have a more accurate version of the, or don't models have to necessarily simplify That's in right. some way? And so therefore it's like fictional. It's a, it's an, yes. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. This may be getting a little off the direct line of the conversation here, but I think it's closely related and it's related to some of our more recent work. And that has to do with how we not just understand and model our own attention, but how we model other people's attention. And so I look at you and I have an immediate sense of what your attention is doing. And that's very important socially. In effect, I attribute to you a consciousness of me. I think you're conscious of me because I see in your eyes, even though you're on a computer screen in front of me, nonetheless, I see in cues in your face. It could be eyes. a simulation. You don't know. I don't know. You could be. <laughs> but the that's, in a sense, the point that the cues available to me convince me to build a model of your attention focused on me. And one of the ways we do that, it turns out, is really weird. If you put someone in an MRI scanner and you show them a picture of a regular old person looking at an object like a tree. So you look at Kevin looking at a tree and you're in the MRI scanner. I scan your brain. I'm going to find activity in the visual parts of your brain that process visual motion that are busy constructing a fake signal of motion flowing from Kevin to the tree. Right. So your brain is creating a fiction that some weird fluid substance is flowing out of Kevin and going to the tree that he's paying attention to. This is weird. Everyone does this. Most people don't know it because it's under threshold. Why do we do this? Our data suggests it's like trying arrows on the social world to keep track of who is attending to what. And it's useful for us, but it's totally physically incoherent. And so this is an example of how the brain constructs models that are useful. It does not construct models that are literally accurate. It doesn't like, that's not the point. Evolution does not give us models that are literally accurate to edify us with scientific accuracy. No, the evolution shapes models that are useful. And in, this is a case of a, of a model the brain constructs, namely attention is a thing that flows out of people's eyes toward objects, a model that's completely physically wrong, but socially useful. Yeah. You mentioned this tube tilt experiment you did to track people's extra missive 
view of sight. Could you talk about that a little bit? And you said that people's folk sense of vision, I guess it's probably less pervasive now among educated people, but their folk view of vision is this idea of like rays projecting from people's eyes, right? Yeah. It turns out that essentially all children start with that assumption. And then at some point you're taught otherwise. That's just how we grow up intellectually. And in our own hands, when we did surveys, turned out about 5% of the adult population still believes in vision as things coming out of your eyes, rays coming out of your eyes. So it's a small percentage. Most people are, they understand light goes into your eyes, but it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, because hidden under the surface, your brain is busy sticking rays on people's faces coming out of their eyes. Every time you look at people, your brain at some level is seeing rays coming out of their eyes, connecting them to the things they are paying attention to. And that's just how we keep track of the visual of the social world. And the example that you alluded to, the experiment we did, this tube tilt experiment, we basically showed people pictures of a tube sitting on a, a table and it was, they had to decide if the tube was tilted a little bit, they had to decide, well, is it going to fall over or not? Is it tilted enough to fall over? That's the question. And it turns out without knowing it, people's judgments are biased by the sight of someone else staring at that tube. And if they stare at the tube, people treat that as though something is beaming out of the eyes and pushing on the tube tending to knock it over. Did it depend on whether they were looking at the beam from the, the bottom or the top, looking at the tube from the bottom or the top? We did not test that. So there's a whole bunch of variants that we would love to test. And you would think if they, if the gaze is at the top, it'd be more of a leverage, but it's a little hard to get the, you don't know where people really think the gaze is pointing. We did find though, that if they thought the tube was made out of heavy concrete, then the I beams had very little effect on it, <laughs> it was, but if, if cardboard, yeah, exactly. Of course, it's exactly the same image. It's just what they thought was going on. And we also computed the, um, strength of the beam, which came out to about a hundredth of a Newton, which is very, it's like a slight breath of air. So that's about the strength of the I beams. But the point is the totally fascinating point is we're all doing this all the time, even though we don't know it. We all believe at some level in these I-beams. We don't believe in it intellectually. Well, that's why we've said that feeling of being stared at that you also yeah. reference, right? It makes you feel there's something on your back or whatever. If you think someone's looking at you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in a way, it one can make a bit of an analogy since we were talking about solving the problem of consciousness. One can make a bit of an analogy. You could have a group of people who says, how can we explain the magical I-beam? the substance, what is the substance that beams out of people's eyes, right? And that's an unsolvable hard problem. But you can also have science look at it and say, there really isn't an IB, but we can understand how the brain builds that model and leads us to think in those terms. And we can understand the evolutionary progression of that. That's understandable from a scientific point. You start the book by talking about how you engaged in a little bit of ventriloquism and, I, and you reference yourself as a ventriloquist. I didn't know whether that was at the end of the book, you said 
your bio has you down as a ventriloquist. And I didn't know that was a, a joke or is that, do you actually do this for, yep, uh, for, I'm pretty good. You go to birth, kids' birthday parties and do ventriloquism. You know, I think even if you're not a professional ventriloquist, if you've ever played around with kids, you'll often animate the stuffed animals. And it's very easy for the kids to, you know, immediately start interacting with the stuffed animal as if it is alive. And I'm sure if you ask them, well, is it alive? They'll say, no, no, look, I know it's not alive. I know it's made of cotton or whatever, but it's so easy to, to kind of get into that. When you're describing that, it reminded me a lot of when you read the pre-Socratics and they describe how people believed that trees had spirits and that all inanimate objects were effectively conscious in some way. And, and you would try to infer intent from those objects. And we do that with little dots on the screen. We do it with video game characters and, and so forth. So this idea of theory of mind or the attribution of, of awareness to these objects, why is this useful, right? Why is it useful for us to, to do this yes. in all these circumstances where we do it? Yes. So here's what I think. There are different views on this. Here's what I think. Humans are hypersocial. Our success as a species, our world dominance rests entirely on our amazing intuitive ability to guess what someone else is thinking. So a theory of mind or building models of other people's minds. Without that, we're nothing. We're just separate animals. With that, we're civilization. And that everything we've ever done as a species that's successful comes out of that. And I think what evolution did was hit on a strategy. There's some kind of knob, like a volume knob, and it, evolution kept cranking the knob up higher and higher. And the higher it got, the more sensitive we got to what other people might be thinking and feeling, the more successful we were as a species. And there is a consequence, a side effect of that. The side effect is that we tend to see uh, consciousness and mind in everything. And so we see it, as you pointed out, in puppets and dolls and trees and all kinds of things that don't have brains. So now you can ask, is there a downside to exuberantly attributing minds to everything? Maybe it wastes energy in some sense, but the upside is we are exquisitely hypersocial animals and the benefit, the survival benefit we get from it is just astronomical. It separates us from every other species on the planet. On the other hand, maybe some of these things we think of as mistakes aren't mistakes because there might actually be a benefit to seeing mind and consciousness in things that don't have it because it is after all the underpinning of storytelling which helps pull us together as communities and it's a way for us to feel connected to people that we haven't seen in years that we might run into again at some point and there's so many different ways that attributing minds to things that don't have it like characters in a fictional story might actually be a benefit and not a liability. So I'm reluctant to say that all of this is some kind of big liability, but I certainly think evolution cranking up the volume on our social sensitivity is the key to our success as a species. Where's the line drawn in terms of that theory of mind? We know that, for instance, three-year-olds struggle with this theory of mind, and but ultimately it kicks in for everybody. But you describe a scenario where say a zebra is escaping from a lion. Does that zebra need a, a theory of mind to successfully escape or can it just have a, can it 
be like a Tesla, again, to trying to avoid accidents. I think that there's a tradition, especially in animal behavior, that comes from what's called the behaviorist school in psychology. This tradition never to attribute anything to the inside of an animal's head, to treat them as lookup tables, inputs and outputs lookup tables. And that's a very old tradition. And in that tradition, one would never assume that a zebra has theory of mind, like that's nuts. But I think that thinking is wrong. I think it's completely wrong. I think that especially given modern work on computation and artificial intelligence, we begin to see model building as a really efficient way to deal with the world and simple sensory in uh, response out lookup tables as a ridiculously inefficient, costly way of dealing with the world. Zebras have big braids. They're building models. They're doing something with that hardware up in there. Of course, they're building models. How complex is their theory of mind? That I don't know. But here's another complexity. Theory of mind is typically tested with a particular kind of thing called a false belief test. And we don't have to go into the details, but it's a very complicated kind of test where you have to guess whether someone else will do this or that, depending on whatever, and maybe they're wrong or right. And it's like a shell game. It's a very complicated kind of thing that requires a lot of cognitive intelligence to penetrate, to see your way through. That's the test that children cannot do until after about the age of five right? When their cognitive ability grows up enough that they can keep track of all the variables and the false belief test. That's the test that adult chimpanzees can do to some degree. And crows, these super intelligent brainy birds can do to some degree, but very few, if any other species have been reported solving that really complicated task. I don't think that's a good benchmark for theory of mind. That's too narrow of a definition. It's too complicated. It's like saying, does someone perceive color? Let's give them this really complicated test where they have to remember reds, yellows, upside down, triangles, squares, and only creatures with really good cognitive capacity can keep track of all the variables and give you the right answer out the other end. But for a zebra to look at a lion and say it to itself, essentially, that's an entity. That entity has a mind, meaning it has a repository of information that motivates it. All the cues indicate that its mind contains information about me because it's looking at me and its facial expression just changed. So I attribute to it information about me and I attribute to it, therefore, a likelihood of acting on that information and attacking me. Therefore, I better run. That's model-based prediction and uh, model-based computation. And I don't know, there's no data on it. I'd be willing to bet though, that zebras do that, that zebras have that capacity to build simple models of other agents as having minds that actuate their behavior. I just saw a video on, on YouTube of a gazelle that was basically playing dead while a lion was kind of fiddling around with it. And then when a hyena came along and the lion turned its attention to the hyena, the gazelle jumped up and ran away. And it would right. seem, now I don't I'm always worried that I'm engaging in some kind of anthropomorphic transfer, but it does seem that requires some kind of theory of mind in order to track the gaze of the lion and figure out what a lion would intend in those circumstances. So maybe their theory of mind is limited to lions and 
and gazelles and they don't they wouldn't understand what a frog is thinking but maybe ours is a little bit more complicated than theirs but i think you're right that makes total sense so one thing that sh potentially shows i well, would have to test you know and do it in a very controlled way but one thing that potentially shows is gazelle can model the attention state of the lion and know when the lion is its attention has moved on from me to something else and know what that means if its attention is on something else then its actions are aimed towards something else presumably it's only going to be stotting when the lion's looking in its direction it's not going to waste its energy stotting when the lion is looking elsewhere right that could be but anyway yeah i think animals uh probably most mammals maybe many species of birds possibly even some species of reptiles have at least simple rudiments of this model-based way of modeling attention essentially attention is a mind focusing on something and so i think creatures in this broad range have some limited capacity to know what that is and to monitor their own doing and monitor other entities doing that kind of thing i thought that's my guess now you talk about hemispatial neglect in one of the books and and what i find interesting is that in this state the information apparently is still being captured it's just has no framework in which to be recorded and interpreted and so therefore it's as if it's not being digested and and i guess if, if you had semi hemispatial neglect on both sides then that's when you become a zombie and because you know you just there's no model there's no theory and so you even if there's attention there's no structure to that attention is that sort of how we should think about that well neglect is so fascinating it's a little bit yeah, it's a horrible thing. The people who have neglected. It's like data with no theory is just noise, right? So the way hemispatial neglect works is damage typically to the right side. It can happen to the left. It's much more common on the right. Leads to a total loss of conscious awareness of everything to the opposite side of space. And a loss of ability to control your attention, to make yourself pay attention over here to specific things. So you're not aware of it. You don't pay attention to it. Your attention can, in some sense, be drawn to a flashy light or something, but you can't control your attention over there. So you're unaware of it. This means, for example, that you don't even understand that there is a left side of space that you're missing. So you eat the food on the right side of your plate and you think you're done and somebody rotates your plate and more food appears and you don't know how that's possible or where it came from. And it's all a big mystery to you. So. It's really a bizarre phenomenon, but what happens is the epicenter of neglect, the part of the brain that when damage causes the most severe form is the part of the brain that we think is constructing this model of attention. It's telling you that your attention is here and there, and it's allowing you to control your attention. And so what you lose in neglect is both conscious experience of things and the ability to control your attention with respect to those things. They both go out the window. Now you're right. If you had neglect on both sides and there are people with such severe damage to the attention networks on both sides, the parietal frontal networks, it really wipes out. These are the people who are most likely to be seen as on with, without consciousness. So essentially in a vegetative state, there's nothing going on up in there. So everything just turns to jelly because there's no crystalline structure to the attention more or less. Right. Well, you can't control it anymore. But I, with hemispheric neglect, if somebody's, if you see a 
somebody throws a brick at you, right? You're still going to duck because yeah, that's right. There's something there's the data is coming in somehow. It's just dissolves because there's no structure to it. Right. What's dissolved is your ability to strategically move your attention from item to item. And that's the root of all complex behavior because you can't strategize and plan a behavior unless you can move your attention from thing to thing. So just to give an example of one of the spookier findings in neglect, show a person with neglect, two houses, one above the other, and they see the right side, but they're neglecting the left side. And they're identical as far as the patient can tell, because the right sides, the houses are identical. And you tell them, what do you think? Which house do you want to live in? And the patient may say the upper house for sure. They look the same, but I don't like the bottom house. Why don't they like it? Because on the neglected side, there's a bunch of flames coming out the window on the left side of the house. The patient can't see that. They're not aware of that explicitly, but the information gets in and informs their thinking and their behavior. So the brain processes stuff coming in from the neglected side, but they're unable to be aware of it, consciously aware of it, or to control their attention toward those items. Now, there's a lot of conversation about kind of AGI and how this would be different from the artificial intelligence that we all know and love. And so the artificial intelligence we know and love is, say, you know, a Tesla that can do all sorts of wonderful things, but we don't attribute consciousness to the Tesla. And there are some people that are super concerned about this. There are others that think it will never happen. And you speculate on what it would take for us to create conscious machines. First of all, what would it take? Second of all, do the people who talk about AGI, what's their theory? How does their theory of consciousness differ from yours? Do they understand AGI as consciousness or do they understand it as something a little bit different? And then maybe thirdly, tell us about should, is this something we should be super concerned about? I interviewed Stuart Russell recently, and he was very concerned about this. Um, yeah, yeah. So one thing I would say is among people who study consciousness, I think I'm a little unusual because most people think the question of consciousness is a question of philosophy. And it is that partly, I think it's a question of technology and the immediate near-term future of technology. That's what the question of consciousness really is right now. And I come at it from that angle, from an engineering angle. And so everything I do is focused on that. I think it is possible and will happen relatively soon to build machines that believe they are conscious and think they are conscious and claim they are conscious in the same way that people believe, think, and claim we are conscious. And I think that's what we are. We are machines that by virtue of the information and self models in us have these beliefs about ourselves. And those beliefs are really important in how we interact with ourselves and with other people. Would they, all they need would be to have an intentional schema of a relative sophistication to qualify, or would they also have to be yep. able to articulate their conscious state? Yep. That's once you really understand this for what it is as the kind of mechanism that it is, you realize it's not the case that there's some magic thing that goes poof and now it's conscious, right? There's components to it and you can have more or less of those components. And sure, what everyone wants to see who has a sci-fi fantasy is C-3PO who can talk and interact in a really sophisticated way and apparently has his own consciousness. But if it didn't have language, it could still have these other components as well. Yeah, I think you said that the Turing test is on the one hand, 
too easy, but also too hard, right? Oh, the Turing test. Yeah. Well, the Turing test is, is a bit of a wash. Aside from the fact that it's not the test that Alan Turing actually proposed in 1950, which was way more sophisticated and clever. So modern Turing test is a test of people's social ability to attribute consciousness to things. And so are you fooled into thinking something has consciousness? That's easy. Take a little kid, give it a stuffed animal with a nice big set of eyes and the stuffed animal passes the Turing test, right? That's the extreme end. But what it's doing is testing our social ability to project consciousness onto other things. And that's not really what I'm, I'm talking about. I'm talking about machines that can attribute consciousness to themselves and to others. Now you touched on this really interesting question. Is it a good idea or not? Should we be worried about it? I think the worries come from a, a lack of realization of what the term consciousness really means to people who study it. Cause there's this idea, if we give something consciousness, that means we're giving it autonomy. We're giving it the ability to make its own decisions, act independently, have its own agendas, make its own decisions. And that seems like a bad idea. Something's going to wake up and kill us all. But to people who study consciousness, none of those things are consciousness. And in fact, machines already are autonomous, make their own decisions, have their own agendas and so on. And that gets more and more sophisticated as time goes on. The consciousness component is this self model that tells you, I have a mind and a way to look at others and say they have minds. And one of the reasons I think why evolution gave us such a robust sense of that is because it's evolution's way of making us pro-social. Like it radically increases the likelihood that we'll get along with each other. Of course, there's still jerks in the world, but the fact that we see consciousness in ourselves and others is the glue that makes us pro-social, that makes us more or less hang together and work together. And without that, if I walked into a supermarket and every person there was a separate agent who saw the rest of the world as just objects in the way, how quickly would somebody just shoot up the place in order to get through the line quicker? Everything that makes us humane depends on us having consciousness and seeing it in others. And so I do not think it's a bad thing to build this into our machines, which otherwise are just sociopaths. But you also say that the impact of cell phones was far greater than anyone could have anticipated. And so the impact of conscious machines could, could be much more dramatic than anything we could imagine right now, right? I think that's true. It will reshape everything. It will utterly change our society. I, I have said before that the watershed moment in the entire history of our species is the moment we understand consciousness well enough to engineer it. And I think we're mighty close to that. But I think the most provocative thing that I read in the book, Rethinking Consciousness, was that consciousness is not something that is you accumulate all this data and then this thing magically pops up above the data, but rather that consciousness is data, that consciousness is, it's just very complicated data. And so if we could figure out, right, what that data was, if we could figure out, and of course the number of synapses in the brain, are, it's just so huge that we're not super close to doing this, but if we could somehow map out all of the, the neurons and all the synapses in an individual brain, we could not only capture the, the consciousness of that brain, but we could potentially 
drag and drop it into another environment. So the last chapter of your book, I didn't know until after I read the book that you actually wrote fiction, but it made a perfect sense to me after I read that chapter. I was like, oh, okay, I want, I want to read his fiction because that last chapter played out like a science fiction novel, although one with lots of different possible endings. And so it's called Uploading Minds. And you think of this as an actual possibility, but of course the immediate problem, which you highlight, is that this will not grant us any immortality because after we've transferred our mind, we'll then continue to live and then die out and we won't have any knowledge of what our clonal brain is actually experiencing, right? Yeah, the clonal brain gets to live on forever. There's a whole bunch of caveats to that. But first I would say, yes, this is technically possible. Everything we think we know about the brain, the mind, and so on points toward this possibility. It's something that some people think will happen very soon, but I am absolutely certain that we're nowhere near it. This is a long time in the future. It's very hard to predict when because it depends on technology that has not been invented yet. And sometimes I point to the example of gravity waves. When Einstein first predicted gravity waves about a hundred years ago, he noted that it would never ever be measurable under any circumstances by any device imaginable. Oh, I guess it's just a theory. A hundred years later, it's measurable and equipment and technology marches on. So I don't know but I suspect this is a very long time in the future. The trick of building an artificial brain with enough neurons in it that interact in the right ways is not as hard as people think. Really sophisticated artificial neurons exist. Millions of them can be hooked together into artificial brains. To create the 86 billion that you need to simulate a human brain is not that far off in the future. The difficulty is 100% in knowing how to hook them together, knowing how to read the information that's already in a brain and then write it into the new device. And that's the thing we don't know yet. So if we could do that, then, and I think this will happen. There are many people trying very hard to work on this. Ultimately, it's going to have to happen hundreds of years, perhaps from now. When that happens, what you do is in a sense, you split yourself off. Right. Because that it's like a fork, right? Yes. It's a, a fork or a, a Y branch, you know, the base, the stock of the Y is shared by both you and this artificial creature. You both have the same memories of childhood, but the artificial creature goes on living and you don't, <laughs> you die. You could have more than one, right? You could have more than one. You could have all kinds of crazy things happening that will uh, restructure us as a species. As soon as we realize that mind, which is the essence of who we are, it is transferable. It's not stuck in one piece of hardware. It's something that you can copy and paste in principle. As soon as that happens, the whole concept of what it means to be human changes in ways most of us today don't even want to think about or know about because it's all disturbing. But I think that's happening. It's going to, it's going to happen. Get used to it. We don't have to get used to it. We'll be dead by that. You had some great speculations. It might be harder for uh, junior faculty to get tenure. All the emeritus people stick around as senior faculty for a long time, but, but I guess they would have a whole lot more virtual students out there potentially. Um, yeah, but the thing that after mentioning all of the different problems, one of which I thought was the obsolescence of the hardware, I just threw out a couple of old Sonoses because they stopped no more software to go with the old Sonoses. I had to buy new Sonoses. 
But the problem I was wondering about is, is like senility, right? So if you could get rid of the physiological deterioration, would you necessarily get rid of the, the deterioration that, that happens, right? Because could it just be that there's a capacity constraint in the brain and if you don't have a tool for deleting, you talk about kind of a scrolling window, would you need some kind of new method of deleting old memories in order to keep the ball rolling? There could be solutions to that. I think what we understand as senility medically is the result of physical damage in a brain that's deteriorating, and that would not necessarily have to happen. But you do hint at an important point. It is kind of assumed in the futurism world, assumed that technology is forever and the human body is fragile. And so what you want to do is upload yourself into a machine or put your body into a robot and then you'll live forever or whatever the fantasy is. It is true that the exact opposite is what actually happens, that a human body, if taken care of properly, lives 90 to 100 years and your typical machine lasts 10 years. So actually the approach to technology would have to change also if you want this kind of longevity that people are looking for, because the machine world is actually not a, a long-lived world. It's machines break a lot faster than biological bodies break, at least for right now they do. You could have the brain in the vat and then the janitor knocks over the vat and then it's all over for you, right? Oh, that, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, Michael, this has been great. I should mention that in addition to these wonderful books on neuroscience, which I don't think you call them works of philosophy, but they are, in my view, overlapping profoundly with philosophy, you've also written a bunch of novels, including novels for, for children under a pseudonym, B.B. Wergy? Wurge. Wurge. B.B. Wurge. Okay. Yes. So I can't let you go before asking you to tell me a bit about what motivated you to write fiction and how do you see the writing of fiction as, do you see it as, as a complete unrelated sideline to your academic research or do you see it as something which is complementary to your academic research? Would you recommend to other academics and scientists that they explore the writing of fiction? And I should mention that you're actually the fourth of my academic scientific guests who has also written a novel, but you've written many. Of course, I think it's, I recommend it. It's wonderful. I've been writing fiction since I was a kid, before I was a scientist. So it's just something I do. I've written lots of different kinds of fiction, some for a more adult audience and some for a child audience. And the children's books, I used a pseudonym just so that they didn't accidentally pick up a book on the brain and read that thinking they were going to get a kid's book. So it was just good labeling or um, salesmanship to have the children's book name different. B.B. Wurge is a supposedly a super intelligent orangutan, by the way, who writes children's books. So he has a backstory, but less. Yes, I love writing fiction. It's not integrated into the science in any specific way, but they both come out of the same brain and a lot of the same skill set, I would say, is involved in both. So I enjoy both. If nothing else, when one thing's getting frustrating, you can always turn to the other one for a while. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me. I will definitely pick up some of the fiction. And I typically, before I started my podcast, I'd say half of my reading was fiction and half was nonfiction. But since the podcast, I've had to cut back on my fiction. So I'm looking forward to my next vacation where I can 
try to balance things out with a lot of fiction and I'll have your at least one of your novels with me. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.